0: Today on the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast, I am joined by hockey tactics and player development expert, Jack Han. We did an inverted interview where he came on the podcast and asked me some questions and also shared some of his insight from his career for all young aspiring hockey media personalities. All of this and much, much more in this week's Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. Jack, and how are you doing? I'm doing
1: wonderful, Broly. Actually, uh, before we get started, why is it Broly?
0: Uh, Broly, because, uh, my name's Brody and I played goalie growing up. I still play goalie. I coach goalie. So it's kind of my forte, I guess. And then my mom kind of came up with the nickname. I forget for what exactly, but I thought it was cool. So I kind of went with it.
2: Okay.
1: Broly, the goalie. Perfect. So as we talked about before this show, we're actually going to do something a little bit unusual. We're going to do a, an inverted podcast where it's the guest who's interviewing the host. And the reason why, uh, I thought it'd be really cool if you did this is because obviously this is your podcast, but then, uh, your listeners don't know a ton about you, right? It's mostly about whoever you invite for that given week. And I thought it'd be really interesting if you kind of dug into, you know, why would a 16 year old, uh, start a podcast and, but also how can a 16 year old get started, uh, you know, from scratch and then get really interesting guests on and where do you want to take this whole project? So before anything else, I guess uh, Broly, what's your deal in life right now?
0: Well, right now I'm in high school. I'm 16 years old, as you said. Uh, So I'm just trying to get through grade school right now. And then I'm looking to try and get to university already. I already have the one I want to go to in mind. So I'm trying to look at my prerequisites and get all prepped for that. And just trying to cruise through school right now through this pandemic.
1: And then why a hockey podcast?
0: Well, I've kind of grown up around the game of hockey. My dad played hockey for a while. I kind of grew up, I've grown up playing hockey, played hockey since I was four years old. So had a really keen interest in it. And I didn't decide to do a hockey podcast specifically. I was originally thinking of just doing a podcast about whatever popped in my head, but I don't think that'd be very interesting. So I tried to keep it specific to hockey and I kind of got invested into the Jets. Obviously I'm a Jets fan as some people who listen know. And I kind of started off, I'd, I'd only talk about the Jets really, but then I started getting on guests and I thought it'd be cool to see what other people's perspectives were. So that's kind of why I started a hockey podcast.
1: So uh, I, I'm, I'm 32 now. So, you know, I, I'm quite a bit older than you are, but it, it seems to me like starting a podcast is not something that the average 16 year old thinks about doing. Um, and, would you say that's a fair thing to say?
0: That's definitely a fair assessment. I, I know, uh, not many people my age even think of starting a podcast. I know some of my buddies have asked like, Hey, you want me to come on, talk some hockey? It'd be cool. But I know nobody, it doesn't really pop into many people's heads, but c- kind of the reason that at the young age of 16, I wanted to start is I talked to my guidance counselor. He told me like, why don't you consider something else or try and do like YouTube or something? So I'm like, Oh, I think I should try a podcast. And then one of my relatives they started a podcast and they used Anchor, and I still use Anchor actually to start a podcast. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just do it on there because when I first started doing my podcast, I thought that I was only list, playing it to people also on Anchor. But it turns out I could get on Apple, and that was probably highlight getting that email from Apple saying your podcast is on Apple. It's probably highlight one of the best moments of my life, and I got on Anchor, and then I started doing episodes. And kind of a prerequisite is kind of how I treated it at first, but I've kind of really gone into it now.
1: So what's what's the master plan? Because when you reached out to me initially, you said that you wanted to work in sports broadcasting eventually. Is that is that the plan right now?
0: Yeah, it's it's really it's kind of anything in sports media. I started writing articles. I still write some articles just for fun. But I'm one, a teacher told me a really important lesson to try and get as much as you can, as much um, experience in everything. So really, really right now, it's just sports media, but broadcasting is probably the way it's going to go.
1: Mm -hmm. and um so obviously you're a big hockey fan but what about you as a player tell me about Broly the player
0: okay like in net i've always been a goalie who's faced 40 plus shots a game so i was always i kind of always got told at goalie camps like you're only good because you face 40 shots in the game but i thought i was good i had like a goals against average of like two and i generally had a save percentage over 93 playing house league so um as a player, I guess I'm, i just, I'm, I used to be a very small guy. I'm like six foot now, so I'm not tiny, but I was really small, really fast. And I sucked at my glove. I'm going to be honest. I could not catch a puck for the life of me for like the first 10 years of my hockey career, just couldn't catch it. So I just tried and get in the way of it and use it as a second blocker. But eventually I kind of learned how to catch pucks. So kind of a, just a quick butterfly goalie is how I classify myself.
2: Okay. And
1: so, um, do you have any aspirations of playing at a higher level or you've kind of, uh, you know, throttled down on, on the playing side?
0: Yeah. Well, the funny story is when I, when I first started my plan, always growing up was to play in the NHL. Well, I guess I'm still growing up now that I say it, but at 13, I went to my first, uh, actual like pro hockey tryout. It was like double-A and I was the last goalie cut. And I realized I'm like, if I can't even make double-A. NHL is probably out of the picture for me. So that's when I kind of switched it over to broadcasting. If I can't, if I can't play the sport, I want to talk about the sport because I'm a very talkative person. So that's kind of where that came into play.
2: Okay.
1: And so you, you've had uh, how many guests on so far?
0: Well, this is episode, I've done 53 episodes and I think I've done six or seven without guests. So I've had like f- over 40 guests on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So looking back at all the previous guests that you ha- you've had on, what were some of, I would say like two or three biggest uh, learnings that you've since applied in your life?
0: Mm, biggest learnings. Um, I'd say Dave Randor, there was some of a recent one. I think it was like uh, a month ago. I kind of learned, he, I kind of asked him, what do I want to do? Like I want it to be a broadcast, like play-by-play. And he told me, just watch the games, put it on mute and try and talk over and try and bring some insight into it. Even if you're just sitting there by yourself, you may look like an idiot, but you're learning something. So he's probably pretty insightful. But when I think of the most insightful one, there's been a lot, so it's kind of tough. Probably it's Dave Randor for me, or I talked with, who was it again? Jay fresh i think was talking about it and he was kind of that's when i first got into analytics so i'd say that's the most insightful because i've really implied that into my life and i'm a big analytics guy now well not big but bigger than the average hockey fan
2: yeah
1: so but by, by the time that you're his age you're probably going to be uh, a bigger deal on social media than uh than he is now so so hopefully that will come to pass hopefully and 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 i think it's really interesting just to kind of get your perspective on things because i remember so you know back to me now but uh you know i made the nhl at 23 as a writer then i made it at 27 as a you know analyst or you know a video scout uh then i i became a, an ahl coach that, at at uh, 29 but Really, when I when I look back at my more formative years, like a lot of things happened at 16 to kind of put me on that path. And so when I was your age, I was kind of, um you know, I played hockey in high school, and I've always kind of come at the game from a little bit of a different angle because I was born in China and my parents uh, and I moved to Montreal when I was uh, seven years old and that's when I started playing hockey and stuff like that. I was never the best player growing up. And, um, you know, I stopped playing for a couple of years. We moved around. And then I came back, uh, around the time I hit puberty, I kind of lost a lot of baby fat. Then I came back to the game, um, and realized that for the first time in my life, like the harder I worked at something I could see improvement, uh, directly. And I think, you know, when you're in high school, which, which you are in now, and you start kind of understanding that there's a direct correlation between working hard slash working smart and your results. I think that's really empowering. And then, uh, for me, sports was probably where that like, where I learned about that the most, because I was always pretty good at school. I wasn't the best. And I don't think I was really motivated as a student all that much. Um, like I remember when I was 16, you know, I played hockey and I did extracurriculars and I was okay at school, but there was always a sense of like searching for something. Whereas, you know, for you, it's crystal clear that you want to work in hockey. You want to be in sports broadcasting, but, you know, I didn't have any role models in my family or even kind of in my immediate community that I could say, well, this is a good path for me. I just, uh, you know, my parents wanted me to have a normal job, like a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, an accountant or anything like that. And I kind of just went along with it till I was in my twenties and then, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, you have 40 guests on and all of a sudden, you, you know, things that you didn't before and you've changed as a person, you look at the game differently. And it got to a point in my early twenties, where, you know, I was blogging about hockey, about tennis. I was getting, uh, um, press accreditation to go cover the Rogers cup, uh, or to cover Davis cup for, for tennis. And, One day I was just like, whoa, whoa, like I can actually do this as a career, maybe not coach hockey and definitely not play hockey professionally, but maybe as a writer and covering the game and uh, on the media side. Right. And then I was hired by the Montreal Canadiens to do their uh, social media and do some of their web content when I was around uh, 23, 24. And, you know, it, it was a one year contract and I wasn't getting paid a whole lot. It was a lot of work. But then, you know, I enjoyed it. But then the the more I got into it, the more I realized that, you know what, there might actually be a, a place in hockey for me because, you know, analytics was starting to be a thing. And it was something that made sense to me a lot intuitively. Uh, where like, you know, growing up playing hockey and coming from kind of a non-traditional background, a lot of the things that my coaches said or uh, the commentators on TV said, like Don Cherry, right? Or, or a lot of the other players or the parents said, they just didn't make sense to me. You know, like, why would you get rid of the puck if the objective of the game is to keep the puck and score goals, right? Or uh, why would you go and hit the guy if the puck is already going the other way? Or, um, you know, one thing my, my dad talked to me about was, uh, why is it that all the small players on your team play better than you like I was the biggest guy like I was I was six foot one at 13 years old and um you know coaches really liked me because I was big and I had a good shot and I had had good I had good reach but I was never really much of a, a playmaker right and and I just couldn't figure out why because nobody understood the game uh the way like well enough to communicate to me what the game is about so really a, a lot of things that I do now at 32 is like this is what 16-year-old me would have liked to have. So really, I'm just trying to kind of be the coach that my 16-year-old self never had. And I think that's why a lot of people really identify with the stuff that I do, whether it's the, the video side or the, the writing side, it's because like everything I do is, is, is intensely personal and they might not realize that um, the, the personal part is because I'm basically coaching myself. So they might identify with it. They might learn something from it. They might find it really interesting, but most, you know, most of all, I'm writing because I find it interesting and and that's never, uh, it's never led me wrong. So whether it was when I was working for the Montreal Canadians, whether it was when I was with the Leafs, with the Marlies, um, I just had a, I, I just always had a really strong sense of like what I wanted to do and what I find interesting. And I just... Uh, no matter what other people would say, I would just kind of pursue that. Like I was, I was not among the cool kids in high school. I was kind of, um, I had my own group of friends. We were just doing our own things. Um, the guys I played hockey with growing up, like I still talk with a couple of them, but you know, it, it just seems like none of them were obsessed about the game exactly the same way that I was obsessed about the game, and then. I just, you know, had the the opportunities and it's, it's a little bit of luck, but mostly it's a lot of persistence and a lot of thinking to actually kind of go into that direction. Whereas, uh, most of the guys I played hockey with, you know, some of them made it to the queue, uh, some of them played pro in Europe, but none of them work in the game today. And they just kind of moved on to other things. So, you know, just going back to when I was 16, there, there was a sort of obsession about it and. You know, I I wasn't really clear if that was going to lead to anything, but ultimately it's just the ability to start working on something in a focused way um, and then continue to do it over time. That's that, that really can take you very far.
0: Yeah and I kind of want to go back to what you said about Don Cherry like I used to love Don Cherry but I really never understood most of the stuff he said like get pucks in deep like what does that mean? Why would you want to get pucks in deep? Like that kind of implies like you want to be in the corners and the whole game like that's what I kind of took from it and it kind of didn't like you said it didn't make much sense to you.
1: Yeah and I mean you know obviously we, we all grew up uh, with Coach's Corner every Saturday and there, there just came a time where you, you do develop this, this sense of uh, critical thinking. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think growing up, um, I was never one to kind of blindly follow authority. Um, some of my teachers didn't like me for that. Uh, sometimes my parents didn't like me for that. Um, you know, uh, later on some of my coworkers didn't necessarily like me for that, but um I just felt like it's always really critical to kind of be curious about things and then also do something about it. Like, you know, I had a long conversation over lunch today with, uh, the, um, with a minor hockey parent, the, the father of a player that I coach. And we were talking about, um, you know, the state of minor hockey because a lot of the players I work with, they're a little bit younger. And then the parents are always looking for better information. And I hear a very consistent complaint, which is you know, minor hockey coaches are not well-educated or they, they don't really know what they're talking about. And, and the thing I told them was um, you know, that might be true, but you know, what, what do you expect, right? There's so much information out there that whether you know something or not, it's actually not that critical. The, the more critical part is, once you hit on something that you don't know to acknowledge it and then look for more information. So Mm -hmm. if you're a coach who can do that, then, you know, you'll probably be more successful. Like there's a lot of things that I don't know. And and what, what I'm, what I really kind of learned in Toronto was, um, being able to work with, with other experts is really, it's a great skill. So, you realize that maybe your own expertise takes you so far mm-hmm. and then you're you're able to recognize your limits and then leverage somebody else let's say somebody who knows about strength training or somebody who knows about nutrition or somebody who knows more about analytics or who knows more about scouting um your ability to have a to have a conversation with someone whose background is different than yours or whose expertise you don't have that's really important so you know, let's say that you're at, you're 16 years old right now and you want to work in broadcasting Well, maybe at some point you're going to realize that your ability to get in touch with people and have conversations with them and to learn from them, that actually prepares you for a, a scouting job or a GM job or a coaching job, mm-hmm. uh, which once again, you'd be happy with because you want to work in hockey. But, um, I think at 16, there's a lot of different paths that you can explore. And for me, like, I didn't even know what I was doing at 16, um, you know, YouTube was starting to kind of be a thing and like, I was downloading hockey highlights off of LimeWire and I was breaking down, like how Kovalchuk shot the puck or how Kessel played off the rush, stuff like that. Um, so I, you know, like I, I do a lot of video analysis now and I was doing all that stuff back when I was 16, but obviously it's far less organized what I was doing back then, but, you can kind of see how it sets the stage for what happens later on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to, uh, you said like, um, that you didn't find much information in your community growing up. I kind of want to ask you a question here. I know it's kind of an inverted interview, but I kind of want to know how you got into hockey growing. You were born in China. You came to Montreal at seven. How, how, did you just come right into hockey right when you came to Canada?
1: So my, um, my dad's best friend's son who by extension became my best friend. Cause he, he was the guy that I, I hung out with the most. He played hockey. So he played, uh, I think he played house league, but he was a better house league player. Like he could, he could have played travel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, wasn't that like, I was just starting out. I was a bit of a, a bit of a fat kid. Didn't move very well, you know, couldn't lift the puck. So for the first two years I played hockey, I essentially had no idea what I was doing and it, it got to be a point where, um, you know, my parents would drop me off at the rink and then my mom would tell me, you know, I don't really care how you play. I don't want you to get hurt and I don't want you to hurt anybody else. And and if that happens, then we're happy with that. So they they really didn't have any expectations in terms of performance. And like, I was always more of a performance oriented person. I was really frustrating for me because I wasn't getting any kind of help. Uh, and I, I didn't really know how it could go about getting better. Like, um, you know, the, the coaches that I had were parents or there were volunteers, uh, they, you know, they did a decent job, but they certainly didn't really give me a a lot of one-on-one attention or a lot of Mm -hmm. targeted kind of teachings. And I always, like, I wouldn't say I resented that, but it, it was always a source of frustration for me. Like, um, for, for me like the worst thing that you can do for a kid in, in, a, in a hockey context is waste his time or waste their time and, and yeah. I just felt like for the first few years of my hockey career like my I was wasting everybody's time and I really didn't like that um, and, and that's why I stopped playing for a couple of years but then once I got older I discovered the internet I saw that there was actually you know a, an ocean of information out there so I was looking up shooting drills I was, uh, you know, getting on my rollerblade and practicing my stick handling. I was shooting against the concrete wall. And I kind of essentially rebuilt my game when I was 12, 13. Like I, I played novice. I didn't play Adam. I didn't play Pee Wee, and I came back. Um, I came back second year Bantam and I went from like being one of the worst players to at least an average player. So I kind yeah. of did like kind of a makeover in, uh, on my own game when I was 12, 13. And, and that really, um, I think that was actually one of the, the, the more rewarding experiences in my life where, you know, my, my dad would kind of see me lug my sticks around and my pucks. And he's like, well, why don't you use this time doing something else? Because mm-hmm. for him, you know, playing hockey was kind of like playing video games, like you're wasting your time.
2: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas looking back, it was the opposite of that because, you know, deliberately practicing something, no matter how uh superfluous you know uh mm-hmm. as a kid actually sets you up to be uh a really you know a, a high performing person later on i think and and that's i i guess something that i would uh share with anybody who's kind of around your age group around 16 years old is whatever hobbies that you're doing take them seriously like if you play fortnite or if you play nhl 21 Um, and you're, you're already spending 10 hours or 15 hours a week playing that, uh, why not, you know, look up the tactics of the game or the mechanics and try to get better at it. And because, uh, you know, it's, it's not really what you do per se. It's, it's more about your attitude toward getting better incrementally or putting in reps or looking to kind of extend your knowledge. And, you know, you look at how competitive the world is right now, um, you know, like sports broadcasting is a very difficult field to get into. It's an even more difficult field to, to, uh, to keep, you know, you, mm-hmm. you see all the layoffs happening. So um, it's really important to kind of develop something of your own and kind of create some equity and then, you know, do projects that you can kind of, you can be a self-starter. And I think it's really important if, if you want to work in the competitive field to be a self-starter and to, also kind of look to be doing something a little bit different because if your whole career is built around, okay, well, I want to be exactly like the guys on TSN or on Sportsnet now, by the time you get to 26 or 36 or 46, that job might not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. But certainly there's always going to be a need for, for people to play sports. And then there's, there's going to be an industry around that, right. To bring it to a large number of people, which, uh, you know, your skill set might come in handy, but I wouldn't be dead set on a specific job because the world's a moving target. Mm -hmm. So if you, sure, you can build up your skills, but you never really know where that's going to take you.
0: Yeah. And kind of with that, um, as you say, like, make sure you have, I kind of took from that, like make sure you have a backup and make sure you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, my kind of goal right now is obviously sports broadcasting, mainly hockey. I, it's really the only sport I pay attention to, but my backup has kind of been like politics. Like I'd love to get into politics, but hockey's kind of superseding politics right now as like my wants.
1: So so what is it about politics that interests
0: you? It's just I love talking about certain issues and talking to different people, hearing different perspectives. I just find it very interesting and I find that there's a lack of uh, I kind of presented this more to America, but we're both Canadian here, but there's so much divisiveness in this world. And I feel like there's, there needs to be more people who are open to both sides. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's not enough people like that.
1: And you, you know what? Like I, I actually see a lot of similarities between hockey and politics, just because um, there's so much storytelling, right? Like whether a team is good or bad or whether a player is good or bad, or whether a GM is doing a good or bad job, whether a prime minister is doing a good, or, uh, good or bad job, a lot of it comes down to the the narrative and the stories that people tell around it, right? So, so mm-hmm. that's the first thing. The the second thing is, um, the you know, like obviously, I don't know you all that well. We we've talked for for a past half an hour, but uh, your ability to connect people uh, on, you know, on on kind of a, a deep level could be your biggest asset. So whether it is you're, you know, you're connecting fans to hockey or you're connecting a politician to his or her constituents, or you're, you're presenting a platform or, uh, you know, you're breaking down a play. It's all about connecting. So it's less about really, uh, it's not even so important what the content is, but it's just the way that you go about making a concept make sense to a group of people, and that means speaking their language, uh, that's probably going to be the skill that's going to be most important for you going forward. So you might apply that in a certain way as a lawyer, or you might apply that in a certain way uh, as a press officer, or even as a doctor. Like, the the best doctors, they're not the ones who are the most, uh, you know, who have the best hands as surgeons or whatever. They're the doctors who connect with their patients and take the time to talk to them. Um, so whatever line of work that you end up doing, the ability to connect is actually going to be kind of a really important skill to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of sense. Because like um, I know on Twitter, I can. This goes back a couple months, kind of in the lockdown. Because we and here in Manitoba, we got locked down in March, and then there was a couple months over summer where it was, everything was sort of open. But then in November, we got at a huge lockdown. So. I kind of got way more invested into the podcast. Like I was doing this every day. I was doing research. I was trying to find new guests every day, reaching out to so many new people. And then I started to get into look watching more hockey. And I found that watching the games, I'm not saying it was like boring to me, but I, I prefer to talk about games, but watching games is good to learn different things. But I found that analytics was more the thing for me because I'm I, I like to consider myself very smart in math but not at much else in school. Like I'm really good at math. I suck at ELA, which is kind of crazy because I'm kind of going to need ELA for hopefully my future career. So analytics kind of seemed right to me. And I forget who the first person I followed. I think, I don't even think it was on Twitter who was talking about analytics. I think it was someone on Instagram. They put up like a story highlight about different analytics and that's kind of how I got into that. And that connected me to analytics. And I feel like I've definitely become smarter when it comes to hockey and Often you get the the terms nerd thrown at thrown at you from buddies and stuff like that. But I've learned a lot over most, morally, the pandemic.
1: Yeah, and so 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 funny how things work out. Like if if you're good at math, uh, you you might find it interesting to know that calculus was invented during a pandemic. You know, uh, who invented calculus? Was it Newton or anyway? They were mm-hmm. sitting around during a pandemic and and they just came up with calculus. So. A uh, fun little fact for you. But the, the, the thing, the thing that really appeals to me about analytics is just, it's a way to organize information so that things make more sense than the otherwise would, because I totally get um, what you're, what you're saying. When, when you watch hockey, there's a lot going on, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like the, the puck is bouncing in all different directions. You know, the players are arranged in certain formations, but then they kind of stray from that. And it's, it's very chaotic. Right. And and, and I think that's where you, you need to be a connector and you need to interpret things that are happening. So obviously stats is one way to interpret uh, storytelling is another. And, you know, there's the, the, the way that you do it um, is, is really a skill that's, that's worth honing, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And I kind of found, like you said, like stats is a good way to interpret, but I found, I, I watch every Jets game kind of now more, but I found like I'd be watching a thing and I'd, lo- I'd be watching this one player, for example, it was Morrissey. And it was right after uh, who was a Truba left. And he, he looked, I'm like, Oh, he looks so bad. I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He doesn't look like a number one defenseman. And I'm reading all these articles out from people saying like, Oh, Morrissey's looking really good out there. I'm like, what, what are you guys watching? How are you guys looking at this and seeing that this guy's good? And then eventually I got into analytics and I looked at it. And I'm like, yeah, this makes total sense to me. And even with buddies who hate analytics, like they hate it with a passion and they'll just call you nerd 24 seven and call you an idiot. Um, one of my buddies, I sent him, uh, I think I got a chart or something, a wrap him chart and I sent it to him and he's like, who's this? And I, I told him like these three are offense, these are your defense. And it's Joel Edmondson, a couple, what was it this season? Might not have been Joel Edmondson, but it showed that he was really good offensively, but he wasn't very good defensively. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I see. And he kind of he didn't get into analytics after that, but he kind of understood where it was coming from. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So, so at at 16, that's like prime time for haters, right? There's a lot of haters. There's a lot of haters everywhere, but there's for sure. There's a lot of haters when you're 16 and you're in high school. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's been a while since I was 16. So, so how do you deal with, with haters?
0: generally uh the hate that i get like on instagram or something like someone will comment on a post with my opinion and they'll say oh you're an idiot and i try and reason with them but usually i'll just laugh it off because it's like what's this guy talking about like on some other post, i'll see him say like some crazy take like dry Seidel's the best player in the league he's way better than math he's like oh okay this guy's just not really understanding it maybe i can try and talk to him but i find i don't have that many haters but it's more just close friends who they just they'll watch like a casual Habs game or something and they're not really into the game too much but I'd say he's kind of into it but not on the whole level like a lot of other people like they'll just watch it and they'll say like what was it the other day we having some argument and he's trying to tell me how Sean Couturier is one of the worst centers in the league he's not even he shouldn't even be on the second line like I'm thinking what is what is it with this guy what what are you thinking man and then the usual nerd thing i've talked about a lot come comes into play when i try and reason with them i'll show some evidence i'm like you love facts man why are you not these are it's science it's math you're literally going into business school you should look at these analytics i don't know what's uh yeah so i wouldn't say i have very many haters but it's not hard to deal with because even when i do get a hater it's like someone who's casually like oh you're an idiot and they'll just laugh it off
1: so uh the what i would what i would tell you is uh you will get haters and you will get more of them as you become more successful in whatever that you do uh having a lot of haters uh might be a sign that you're doing a bad job but mostly it means that what you're doing is uh is actually valuable because if it's not then nobody would be there to disagree with you Mm -hmm. um but but it, it really never stops because first at first for me, it was like, oh, well, this guy has never worked in hockey. And then I worked in hockey. And then it's like, oh, well, this guy, uh, he never coached. And then I coached. Right? And so, so it's like, it never stops, right? Like I could be like, if I coached in, in the NHL, the number of haters that I have would increase exponentially. Like you just see this, like every time I write about the Jets, uh, it just seems to like trigger people into saying that Paul Maurice should be fired. Like every time that I mention the Jets, there's like 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, and you know what? Like that's why he gets paid the big bucks because the people who, with the most haters are the ones who, who make the most money, right? Like mm-hmm. whether yeah. it's like Kanye West, whether it's uh, you know uh, Russell Wilson, whether it's you know Mark Shifley or Paul yeah. Moody. Like those guys have way more haters than you and I do. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like counterintuitive, but you should aim to have more haters because. That just means that you're you're doing stuff that gets attention and mm-hmm. and that's worthwhile and, and gets people kind of, you know, revved up. So fi- it, 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 it never gets easier.
0: Mm-hmm. I find that generally when I get haters, I'll do like a post like, where I'll say every team's like most overrated player. And then there's like this one guy who's like, well, why do you have Blake Wheeler on there? He's like the best player in the league. And I'm like, oh, there's my point exactly. <laughs> but it's generally, it doesn't go too far with hate. Like it's not ever, I guess I, maybe I'm just not, and haven't experienced bad hate maybe it's all actual hate and i'm just not aware of it because don't experience it that much
1: but yeah but, but there's also this other angle where it, it is true that you and i were unusual because you know we aspire to work in the game and we take it super seriously and we do a lot of research
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's not how most people interact with the game and i would say that for you and i that's probably a good thing because if everybody was as serious as we were about the game we, we would get pushed out right like mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the opportunities that we do, um, you know, the, the world looks a lot different when you're part of that very small subset of people that cares intensely about something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, instead of really wasting your time, trying to convert everybody, just maybe realize that they, they're not really in the same place in life that you are and just kind of let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause most people kind of in that, uh, in that mindset, you're never going to convert them. So mm-hmm. let it go.
0: Yeah, I find that like if someone's like disagreeing with me on hockey and they'll try and say like, but like their main argument is like, but so-and-so has so many points. Like that's really all they look at. And they don't, they'll just pull up NHL.com and he's like, oh, he's got good points. He's got good plus minus. And they don't really go more in depth like that. But I understand what you're saying. Like if everybody's going in depth and looking at what he's actually doing on the ice, everybody would be so smart at hockey. But imagine how far hockey would go if everybody was this into it.
1: But, but it's not right. It's the mm-hmm. same thing as everybody as, as anything else in life. And uh, for, for me, you know, it's, it is a frustration to try, to try and navigate that. But at the same time, it is an opportunity because then you realize that, you know, you know what you still have an edge and, and there's still a way for you to get ahead and, and to, um, you know, make this a career or, you know, for, for sure, it's, it's completely normal that people do this as a career would take it more seriously. and would know more. Right. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at other people who do this as a career and who don't know as much, well, if they don't know as much and they're not as curious about learning, then here's a way for you to beat them Mm -hmm. and to to develop an advantage. So, so that's, um, that's something that I really try to implement. And I'm really, I'm almost like a bit of a shark where I'm trying to sniff out, where other people's blind spots are and try to exploit that because you know what like there's only so many jobs in hockey and mm-hmm. at some point not only do you have to develop your own skill set but you got to find a way to outmaneuver other people and and that's I think how you do it it's by being prepared and you know thinking a little bit differently uh you know w- when it's helpful and mm-hmm. really to work with that mindset of like it's almost like being a player right like you not only do you want to uh develop your own skills but you want to be competitive and you want to kind of nudge in front of people and Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how uh pretty much any competitive industry works
0: yeah i know uh, as you said like being a shark i know personally um I try and get more active on Twitter like I, I never used to be big into Twitter I thought it was super weird people just sitting on their phones tweeting all day I didn't really understand the concept of it but I kind of got more into it and I wanted to have debates with people on Twitter like just talk about hockey more of the Jets because that's kind of if I don't want to get stumped on Twitter talking about like the Sharks or something and I don't know much about them so I go look for Jets guys and this, some sports director at a or a Winnipeg radio station I followed him I comment on almost all of his tweets and eventually I started getting into some heated arguments with him. Like when we were talking about, he made an article about Seattle expansion and protecting like Kopp and Lowry over Appleton. And I, got into, I kind of got into it and I looked, I was looking at some analytics and watching Appleton play. He's like one of, I think he's one of the most dynamic players right now, but I guess that's kind of some bias as a Jets fan. But I told him like he leads all Jets forwards in, even strength defense goals above replacement defense goals above replacement he leads all jets forwards and in, in i think it's war no it's mm-hmm. healers um not war uh what is it defense yeah so i just prevented this he's like oh yeah good argument bro Thank- th- that was a good argument and uh, something like that is just great i love hearing that good argument
1: yeah and the Going back to what we talked about kind of telling a story, right? So I guess you were fortunate that the story that you told them appealed to him on a certain level, like, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people might, you know, see some stats and they get turned off because you're not speaking their language or you're not doing a good job of connecting to them. So certainly the facts are the facts, Mm -hmm. but the way that it's presented, I think can either resonate or not resonate. Right. So, um, there is, um, I'm sure you have teachers who resonate with you and I'm sure mm-hmm. you have teachers who, whose style of teaching doesn't resonate. It doesn't make their course material more true or less true, but you you know this intuitively. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really important, You know, whether it's in sports media or something else, it's really important to think back because um, a, a lot of my teachers were really good role models or anti-role models for me, just because I know that, some of them really resonated with me and some of them really didn't mm-hmm. and figuring out the difference and, and trying to figure out like how to act like them or not act like them is, is actually really helpful for me in communicating with other people.
0: Yeah I kind of find the same thing like I found with teachers especially the topics that I'm most interested in are generally the teachers that are like the most like my math teacher right now uh I kind of I interviewed Jay Fresh a couple of months ago. I kind of got really into making player cards. I did a jets tracking project, like with zone entries and stuff like that. So I was going to make some player cards. And right now after school, he's teaching me how to use spreadsheets and stuff like that. Like just cool guy after school, kind of one of my role models, probably I haven't thought about role models too much, but he's, I'd probably say he's up there. Math teacher knows a lot about math. I do really well in math, not in pre-cal really, but I got like, I don't know, average in pre-cal, but I'm rocking a hundred in the easier math. So kind of just sitting there we're talking about player cards and stuff like that teaching me v lookup is how it started so yeah i would say that he resonated with me very well right from the start he resonated with me and kind of got close as a teacher
1: yeah and you know for for someone who's trying to be successful and trying to be unusually successful in in a very competitive field it's really good to have older role models um because it's that it really kind of increases your your speed of learning to be able to kind of piggyback off of their experience mm-hmm. It's like for me at thirty one uh I know a lot of stuff that I would have liked to know at sixteen, but obviously you you don't learn that without living through it well mm-hmm. this, the the next best thing is to have people who've kind of gone through it and and to be able to you know whether it's a small thing like v lookup or whether it's a bigger thing about you know career planning or or mm-hmm. or what else um yeah i mean uh, so we're, we're 45 minutes in. So is there any like kind of more NHR related stuff that you want to talk about quickly?
0: Yeah, I got a couple NHR related questions that I had written down that I was I, I did a lot of research and I had some questions that are you might find unusual. Like, uh, so you're obviously a coach. Um, how much do coaches use analytics that they don't lead on to? Like a guy like Paul Maurice, for example, would you imagine he uses some analytics, even though he's kind of like denounced it a little bit?
1: Oh, uh, for, for sure. I mean, every NHL coach now looks at what you would call analytics, but stuff that's not on, on box scores because all of them have either trackers working for them or they use an external service. So they'll have access to stuff like shot location, shot attempts, zone exits, zone entries. Um, but once again, it's it's how you use it that really matters. So, you know, we're all building this mental uh story of how we're playing or how we like to play Mm. so are you kind of cherry picking facts to support it or are you looking at the facts and trying to construct a coherent story around it which Mm -hmm. which may or may not be true right but um you know like if if we're if we're in Paul Maurice's shoes and we know that the, the course is bad, well, maybe you can say that, well, we play more off the rush and we're okay keeping play to the outside in our D zone. So we'll give up more shots and we'll, we'll score more often than, than average, which that's a coherent story. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the other story is uh, over a long period of time, uh, as long as uh, you know, the course is has as existed, no Stanley cup contender is consistently as bad as the jets are at uh, driving play, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that's a story that I think I would put more weight in just because it's the sum of everybody's experience for the past 20 years or mm-hmm. past 15 years or something like that, rather than just me saying, well, this is the, fast, the, the past five months and this is the story that we're going to go with because it's maybe the less uncomfortable story to, to believe in at this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. and that's interesting that you say that because a couple weeks ago i was interviewing patrick bacon uh we mm-hmm. talked about analytics and he said i asked him like do you think the jets go win the cup they're looking like an up-and-comer and he's like you know what i'm just going to say it no they're not going to win the cup because or it's highly unlikely because no team has been as bad as play driving to win the cup as the jets would be if they'd win like there's there's a consistent number of teams that have really good play driving that win the cup so the jets either need to work on their play driving or they're not going to win a cup and i'm kind of resonated with me and i started to say that to people and people like what what do you mean play driving is not that important and i'm just laughing at them like did you hear what you just said play driving is probably one of the most important things in hockey
1: so there there's kind of a uh I, i would say there's a scale of um how we can analyze hockey Right. There's so so the first one is descriptive. So whether we're talking about like a really good play-by-play commentator, whether it's a really good writer, um, you know, we're describing what's happening in a very accurate way. The second level is predictive. So what Patrick does, so the statistical modeling that he does, it's. Uh, we're, we're giving up the level of detail because it's not that we're saying that the Winnipeg Jets is a bad team. That's yeah. not what we're saying. What we're saying is in the recent past, the teams that have looked like the Winnipeg Jets in, in these uh, statistical models, they tended to be bad teams that didn't win a lot. Mm. Right. So we're losing a lot of detail, but then what we're gaining is the, the ability to compare across time and make these kind of apple to apple comparisons. And then for me, the, the, the level that I, I like to work at, um, work with the most is the, the prescriptive level, which is really, uh, you, you need a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge and a lot more access to uh, both descriptive and, and uh, predictive tools to say, okay, well, this is what the Jets need to do to, to improve their play driving, Mm -hmm. right? So for for me, like it's kind of been a work in progress for the past, I would say five to seven years where, uh, certainly we've all grown up, uh, in, in a descriptive way of consuming hockey. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just watching hockey, playing hockey, listening to kind of the more mainstream media. Uh, we're getting better and better at using the predictive tools. So whether it's expected goals or, um, you know, expected points, um, you know, there's more kind of the analytical tools every day. But finally, once you have experience kind of using a lot of those tools to actually improve players or improve teams, which I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to do so in Toronto and now with my own uh, role clients, uh, now we're prescriptive. So what does it mean if your Corsi is bad? What does it mean if you're allowing a lot of controlled entries against, what does it mean that, you know, you're not scoring a lot of goals. You're not able to get into the high scoring areas. So then um, recently, I I did a collaboration with uh, Murat Ates uh, at the athletic talking about mm-hmm. Kyle Connor. So, you know, Kyle Connor is for my money, one of the most dynamic offensive players in the league, but his defensive results are terrible. Right. And, the prescriptive uh, advice I had for him was uh, not to get overly concerned about the defense, but instead become a more well-rounded offensive player. So the thing with Connor is he's got great skills. He's got great speed, but he, he's not comfortable playing inside of contact, which means that he shies away from, from the play at certain moments and he does things to cheat for offense that he wouldn't need to do if, if physically he was smarter at using his body to gain leverage. Right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is now he's better offensively. He's cheating less. Uh, the puck is farther away from his net and naturally the defensive impact is going to improve. You don't even have to worry about working on these own coverage or all that mm-hmm. stuff, which really doesn't jive with the way that he likes to play hockey. So the, for me, the, the ultimate is really working at that prescriptive level where you can give very detailed, but also very elegantly simple and accurate advice to players. Like, like for me, like that's the best thing about doing what I do now.
0: Mm-hmm. And you kind of, uh, a couple months ago, my next question here is a couple months ago, you started the two forward three defenseman project. I really liked that idea. So a couple months ago, I got bored writing, and I was thinking of the Jets, and I'm like, why, looking through stats, I'm like, why are the Jets so bad defensively? How could they fix this? So I came up with a proposal to either A, put a defensive forward on each line, or B, run, run with four forwards, one defenseman, and I kind of want to know your thoughts if that would actually work, because I was just, I kind of wanted to ask you that, That's and I actually, yeah, I kind of wanted to ask you if either of those would work, or would it not be enough to fix the Jets' defense?
1: Well... I can't tell you that because we we would only know if it works, if we tried it. that's the Mm -hmm. first thing I guess. Um, and and in terms of the jets, the issue really is your ability to get the play up ice and then sustain their zone time in the offensive zone, because, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's just common sense that the puck has to be in, in one of the three zones. And we know that the puck is not in the neutral zone very long. So every second that you can keep the puck up ice in the offensive zone is one fewer second that potentially you'd have to play in D zone coverage. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, no matter how good the jets are off the rush or no matter how good they are in D zone coverage, it's that portion of time that they spend playing defense that's most worrisome. Mm -hmm. So whatever solution that we have to, we we can try to implement it's through this optic that we're going to examine whether it's going to work or not. So Let's say that you can go four forwards one d on the on the first two lines and then two fours three d's um, on the bottom six or mm-hmm. what used to be the bottom six you'd have to try it i you know i I couldn't run the simulation in my head because I don't have that capability mm-hmm. so you'd actually have to try it you have to track some stats you have to uh, you know comb through the video of the sequences and then figure out whether uh, the results uh the early results show you that this is a good idea or a bad idea, but certainly you have to try. And um, you know, if you have the correct tools and the correct way of working, then you're going to be able to squeeze a lot of information out of a small trial. But without that trial, it's just like, there's no use for us talking about it without trying. it.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. I got one more question for you before I let you go. And this is kind of geared to the young listeners here and for like young hockey players, what, should they be practicing the most? Whether it's at home, at the rink, what's kind of the most important thing that kids need to work on?
1: Okay, so so um, I charge a lot for this advice usually, but I'll give this one to you for free, okay? So it doesn't matter if you play at the peewee level, at the junior level, at the pro level, most of the pucks that you get are gonna be outside of the dots and near the boards, okay? So the most important skill for a competitive player to practice is to be able to pick up the puck off the rim and then get it into the middle of the ice. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, we call those rim pucks like bad pucks, because it's obviously it's you're, you're in a bad area. They're bouncing. It's a difficult puck to make a playoff of. So the ability to turn bad pucks into good pucks is for my money, the, the number one driver for players who perform well versus players who don't perform well.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense now that you think about it because I know uh, kind of talking from experience here as a goalie, watching players who are defense, I'm just going to straight out say it. They mm-hmm. couldn't make a pass for the life of them. So it's always bad pucks coming at you. Like guys are getting almost hit from behind or like hitting a bad, awkward spot because they're turned all the way around trying to grab a puck that's just cozied up against the boards. So it actually makes a lot of sense. And yeah. thanks and, and- for – Sorry. Yeah. Keep going. So, so
1: yeah. And for, from a scouting point of view, like if you're scouting and you see a player who's undervalued, it's probably a player who's very adept at turning bad pucks into good ones for himself or for his teammates. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what the game is. It's all
0: about that. All right. This was very insightful. Um, probably one of the most insightful podcasts I've done so far. And it was interesting to see a dynamic of having the guest ask me questions that doesn't happen very often. So thanks Jack for coming on and taking the time and, uh great luck uh with your consulting this season
1: yeah thank you uh you know hopefully you got a lot out of this experience and and hopefully uh
0: your listeners were as well so uh yeah take care hope you guys enjoyed this special interview with jack Han. if you guys did please don't forget to subscribe on youtube and leave a five-star review on apple thank you and enjoy the rest of your week